Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined today by Matthew R.J. Brodsky, who is a senior fellow at the Security Studies Group and a Middle East and geopolitical analyst, as well as a writer. And you wrote an excellent piece yesterday for us on Spectator USA about the glaring questions going unanswered about Jamal Khashoggi. Exactly. And it's sort of inevitable that this story, this disturbing, hugely important story, has become a kind of political catfight in America already. I mean, you directly, actually, and me this morning, accused of being part of a, a smear campaign on, on Jamal Khashoggi. And I think, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's just for answering, asking fairly straightforward questions about who he was and what he was doing. Why is it turning into this toxic fight like everything else in America, it seems? I think we're, we've put this type of issue now into what is the ongoing culture war in the United States. The Kavanaugh hearings for Supreme Court wasn't about a Supreme Court hearing. It had to turn into a Me Too movement moment, which brought it into the culture war. Mm. And so here we are again with this, where if you are saying anything that even remotely questions the narrative, which has been determined already, that narrative, of course, is... How do we make this hurt Trump in the midterm election? So how do we how do we get back at him? In which case, then you just simply present the this uh, individual Khashoggi as a uh, nice, beautiful reformer who was doing all he could to bring democracy to the region, and it's really taken on a a new life in the United States media, which. If you're from the old Team Obama, who are the people who are most advocating, essentially, that we just do away with the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and of course they don't mention it now, but they would, just slide back into the Iran deal, into the old way that we were doing things for the previous eight years. Right. This is the, this is their plan in the media, the exact same echo chamber that sold the Iran deal in 2015, just uncritically reported and repeated the things that Ben Rhodes said at the NSC and that the rest of those people said. These are the same people now writing in the Atlantic or in positions as uh, hired journalists at uh, NBC and other networks who are just reporting repeating the exact same line once again. And mm. and it was Khashoggi, sort of one of those people who repeated the exact same lines. The thing is, he is not the the person that they should be using, one would think, as their uh, their cheerleader or their, their, their symbol to rally behind. Because mm. when he was speaking of democracy, you just simply need to read what he wrote, which is why me, you, none of these other people, a lot of people who are writing questions saying, wait, can we ask a few questions here about the past? None of which changes how anyone should feel about the outcome. Mm. But asking some questions, his own words, he was someone who supported the Muslim Brotherhood. You have, even from people on the left who have written in other source material, like the Looming Tower, that he joined the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1970s, the same time as Osama bin Laden. Of course, he was with bin Laden in May 1988 in Afghanistan, writing profiles yeah. This was the exact time when Al-Qaeda was formed, a few weeks after that. I, su- I suppose that there is a, a, a sort of fair enough critique of conservatives that they might just hear the words Muslim Brotherhood and say, oh, terrorist. You know, and th- th- that might be true of a lot of people on the right. 
Yeah, I, I, that's a good point, that there are a lot of people on the right who, who may think that. I mean, the fact is the Muslim Brotherhood has tried to remain the this ideological pure form of which most Sunni terrorist groups have ended up coming from through mm. that biology, for, through that ideology, whether you're talking about Hamas and other groups, even Al-Qaeda had, draws its roots from that before adopting uh, Wahhabism. This is... But it's a, it's, a, it's a huge, much bigger, broader group than just that. You know, it's, it's got all sorts of factions within it, right? And right. Because Khashoggi fits in somewhere on that spectrum. It, it does, yeah. except when you, do, when you decide that you're going to be promoting the Muslim Brotherhood or writing like in August he did in the Washington Post that the West has the Muslim Brotherhood all wrong and the Arab world is paying for it, or some words as such in the title. Mm. What he's advocating is not what we're hearing about from the from most media outlets, that he's some reformer. The kind of reform he's calling for is along the lines more of Islam, but a la Muslim Brotherhood, as opposed to the more backward-looking Salafi or Wahhabi form of Islam, which is represented elsewhere in the Middle East. Like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's go through, for, for people who aren't intelligent enough to have read your piece yet, but I'm sure they will after this podcast, let, let's go through a little bit about what we should know about Khashoggi. Let's start, take it from the right. top. So from the, these are just things that happen to be the case that require, I think, someone to ask questions. Khashoggi was in Afghanistan in 1988, like I said, writing these two pieces for Arab News, which is run by Saudi Arabia. Now, I've had a journalist say, what does that have to do with anything? If I write an article on on something, does that mean I'm following it? Well, let's understand in the Middle East, when you are writing as a journalist for a state-owned paper, it only happens if the state-owned paper (laughs) decides that they're going to do it. They're usually working for the government. That's Mm. who their masters are. So in this case, he happened to be there a few weeks after Abdullah Azam, the co-founder of al-Qaeda, had created, wrote his piece on al-Qaeda, which was basically the founding type of document that was used then about two months after these articles were written in Afghanistan, Mm. which formed the basis of al-Qaeda. So there he is with an RPG in this, you know, toting around with bin Laden and a bunch of the other founding members in Afghanistan in 1988. Now, you fast forward, and then he became Prince Turki al-Faisal, which is an entirely different clan of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. He became his advisor and spokesman while ambassador to the uh, U.S. and the U.K., yes. that being from 2003 to 2006. There's a whole... There's, and this, mm-hmm. is, this is pertinent because, you know... Even if one doesn't want to be take a sort of suspicious view of Khashoggi, I mean, he would at least know where the bodies are buried in terms of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Al Qaeda and you know the sort of background of nine eleven. Right, he would probably have dirt on the Saudis that he may not have. Correct. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you would like to then start questioning. Most people haven't heard of his name until now, much less even heard these details. Everyone's familiar with the Western reporters, ABC News or whatever. People who have, they were the few people who got an interview with bin Laden before the 9-11 attacks. Well, here's someone who wrote in English for a Saudi newspaper, was carrying RPGs and was there at the moment of its founding, basically. I mean, imagine going back in time and saying like, oh, you were there during the Big Bang? Cool. Can we have a conversation? (laughs) That would be something worth talking about. Yeah. And Prince Turkey, this guy who he worked with, a different clan, he was the director of intelligence 
for Saudi Arabia from 1977 until one week before 9-11. Yeah. You know, so then it's after that that Khashoggi was hired as his uh, media spokesman in that. Now, we should notice that uh, from 96 until 99, the CIA station chief for the U.S. now was John Brennan. Mm. And John Brennan was also CIA director when, uh, in 2017, Khashoggi was given a green card without living here, and no one knows exactly who gave it to him, but he was given a green card to come over here and, you know, write for the paper. John Brennan has had a certain axe to grind politically and ideologically for a while. Yes. But, I mean, of course, it's when, when Khashoggi got his green card, it was, was pre-Trump, so there wasn't an axe to grind then, right? The, when Khashoggi got his green card right before yeah. Trump, but while but while John Brennan was the CIA director under the Obama administration, which which suggests that in some way Khashoggi, it's not too fantastical to imagine, could have been some sort of CIA asset in some way, could have been operating with right or yeah. a Saudi asset. Lee Smith uh, wrote in the Federalist again, just in the form of as we're doing, positing questions like these. He wrote a, a great article on. Uh, 10 questions or unanswered questions. Yes. And one of them, one, and during one of those, he said it seems like he would have been someone, an asset of uh, Prince Turkey, you know, a back channel to Al-Qaeda in its infancy or something like that. The, the relationship was for a while. Yes. We, we already know, incidentally, that the, the people who put Khashoggi in Afghanistan in 1988 to write these articles are people who were from the U.S. considered terrorist financers in 2004 that is when they were listed. So they have a checkered past as well. But again, it seems odd to have been popping up in all of these interesting moments in time. And yes. and, so th and that's why I find it fascinating, because it's sort of so completely anti-journalistic to uh, try and shut down people asking these questions. And, and, and I think I can sort of understand it at the Washington Post because obviously a lot of the senior staff were uh, close to Khashoggi, he was a friend of theirs, and, and they're upset, they're, they're grieving, and, you know, and they're, they're not really in a great position to be journalists throughout it at the right. moment, and that's totally understandable. But a lot of the other media have just accepted this view of him as, as a kind of a, a secular Western-style liberal. Absolutely. Um, who's been murdered in cold blood. When, when as the Fedra, that Federalist piece pointed out, we, we know so little. And if you approach it from the geopolitical spectrum, then in, instead of just saying, oh, he, like uh, one of my friends, Patrick Poole, who's another national security correspondent, I think, for PJ Media, he, he was the one who discovered these articles. So this was his entree into the, oh, well, let me, let me look at it and see what I find. Mm. Well, then you have others. You can just look at the geopolitical spectrum. Why would Saudi Arabia, if they're guilty, why would they have wanted to kill this guy on an enemy's foreign soil. I mean, they're doing this in Turkey. You know, Turkey hates them. Turkey supports the Muslim Brotherhood, yes. and that is ab they're considered a terrorist group in Saudi Arabia. So they're, it's, it's quite possible it they did something very stupid. Right, very right. It could, but to have even brought him in, if the if the idea was then it was gonna they were gonna smuggle him and bring him back to Saudi Arabia, then it could be sure it could very well be that this was a really horrible harebrained idea on the part of the royals. Could be the crown prince. We don't know, and it just went wrong. Or 
what did Khashoggi actually know? What Good, what, was there something more? Because it, there are lots of journalists out there who write bad things about where they came from, especially from people who have left the Middle East and have t- and have green cards, yes. you know, their their freedom card to live in the United States, and then start publishing. Then you know, the, one would assume that there would be in a very long list of those type of people. Quite, I mean, quite a plausible, probably the most plausible theory I've heard so far is that. The Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said, can somebody take care of this problem? And this sort of then spiralled into, in the, because it is a sort of mobster state, this quickly spiralled into a very badly obvious assassination. Right. Well, I still want to hear the yeah. evidence, because yeah. colour me sceptical. And again, I am not a conspiracy theorist myself at all by any stretch of the imagination. I, these Everything that we're talking about, if these people were asked questions we could get answers and then, okay, move on to the next thing. But no one's even asking them. But, I mean... Well, I suppose maybe we have to accept, you know, Secretary Pompeo's view. We just have to wait a little bit longer because there are these two... That, that, that's here. one part of it. But at the same time, uh, where are all of these sources coming from? They're Turkish sources. Okay, so you, what you have is Erdogan, who's smart enough as president that he himself is not leaking it. He's sitting there twiddling his thumbs thinking, what can I get out of this? And I can tell you what I think he's going to get out of it. He wants to basically improve his Muslim Brotherhood aspect <laughs> vis-a-vis the Wahhabi aspect that we have going on from Saudi Arabia. And there are things that he wants from the U.S. when it comes to Syria. But he's allowing, you know, and this is someone who is not afraid to call everyone in the planet a Nazi. Just look up Erdogan and Nazi online and there's 50, 60, 70 pages you'll see people he compares to it. He's He's not ashamed to say things himself. In this case, it's his media, which makes it seem like it's somewhat more legit. These and, and as many people have pointed out, he's no great oh, no, he lo- of, the free, of free speech. Turkey locks up more journalists than any other country. It's yeah. at least free, and it's getting even worse. So all of these leaks are coming from Turkey, from Turkish-approved sources, not specifically from him. And who else? Oh, well, from Al Jazeera and Qatar. Okay, Qatar and Turkey are two countries that have been growing close together, specifically over their support for the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. Both of them were supporting Mohammed al-Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood leader in Egypt previously. This is, <laughs> they're in league together. The leaks are coming from state-run media or from people who are in the wealthy oligarchy who still only operate under the permission of the governments. Yes. And this is, and we no one has heard the tapes. And let's look at the geopolitical picture more broadly still and, and talk about Israel. I mean, Israel's relationship with Saudi Arabia has been, become a lot closer in recent years. They're now in a sort of difficult, Israel's in a difficult diplomatic position. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really treading lightly here because mm. they've had poor relationships with Turkey, with Turkey for a while. Okay. And they very often try to not stick their nose into the middle of things that they know they can't control and have nothing to do with. So when it comes to Turkey, I mean, they've sent up, set out like terrorist sponsoring boats, the Mami Mavra incident, that was 2009-2010. Their long list of every, the long list of Nazis, according to Erdogan, who are in Israel, is quite immense. So what we've seen recently, though, is a part of U.S. diplomacy that just has to do with Syria, 
going forward, we've seen a break in which it's been reported in Turkish press, which of course means Turkey must want the world to know this officially, that there might be some restoration of diplomatic ties with Turkey. That would benefit Israel because the old style of Turkey, the pre-Erdogan turning into a Muslim supporting state of Turkey, that was something that was tied in well with the United States, tied in well with NATO and with Israel. Mm. So Israel doesn't want to mess what could be coming up over, over that, while at the same time, its under-the-table relationship with Saudi Arabia is extremely important because they're the ones who are dealing with Iran directly. And when I say directly, I mean militarily. It's Israel who's pushing back on Iran militarily inside of Syria. Mm-hmm. It's currently Saudi Arabia, for better or for worse, that is doing it against Iran inside of Yemen, not really the United States that's taking the lead militarily in that, although, of course, the U.S. is doing a lot economically and geopolitically. And looking at Erdogan, I mean, for all his thuggishness, he seems to be quite a canny operator. I mean, it it seems that he's using this to get the most... I mean, the fact that the two investigations are working together quite closely, the Saudi one and the Turkey one. Is he using this to get as much leverage as he can over America, over the Saudis, and and perhaps over other countries in the Middle East? Yes. That makes the most amount of sense. Now, first of all, Erdogan is someone who has a demonstrated track record of always overplaying his hands. I mean, you look back at the counter-coup in Egypt and uh, Morsi being overthrown. He remained very vocally in in love with the Muslim Brotherhood, way past the point that it's, you know, that someone would have tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, guy, the ship sailed. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know. So this is, this may represent part of the learning curve because if the old Erdogan would have stood up and declared Saudi Arabia to be full of Nazis and to have been fiery rhetoric himself, you know, because he's the leader of the resistance camp. That's how he's been branding himself. This seems to me like the United States went over there being allies with both Saudi Arabia and Turkey and said, we're going to come to some agreement on this because obviously the idea of a joint Turkish-Saudi Arabia investigation is a little bit bizarre, to Mm. say the absolute least. And this seems to me that he's keeping quiet. He's allowing us in the West to think that, you know, oh, these are just a bunch of independent media folk who work in Turkey who are just getting to the bottom of this scoop and are reporting things, and I'm just going to stay quiet and say I can't control anything. (laughs) Well, yeah, so he's trying to see exactly what he can get out of it. That would be the smart, you know, geopolitical move. And for America, I mean, I suppose, or in America, I suppose in, in Britain, there's often people are uncomfortable with our relationship with Saudi Arabia, and it's true of a lot of Americans too, because they've clearly been a sponsor of terror over the years. And this death, this horrible story, aside from the politicking that's going around it at the moment, maybe it's just, it's come to a point where we have to be honest about the reasons why we have friendships with unpleasant states. Yeah. We are friends, say, with Israel, for example, because we have shared values. We see them and we say they're like Westerners, you know? In fact, that's the knock that everyone uses against them is that they're some European implant. Saudi Arabia is not a shared value relationship. It's a relationship that's on common interest when it comes to energy markets and It has to do with intelligence sharing, which is extremely important. Now, 
this is the basis of our relationship. The What we're hearing from those people in the media, the majority essentially, who just keep irresponsibly taking as the gospel what is just being unsourced, unverified reports from other media, they're trying to get the United, they're trying to get the United States to break off our uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia. This would be stabbing ourselves in the foot. We mm. do not need to do that. There are, incidentally, a lot of ways that we can push back that make sense that still maintain our own interests, which is what we need to be looking after, and that would still send the message. For instance, one of the courses of action would be the Magnitsky Act. Mm-hmm. which has to do with sanctioning humanitarians uh, for humanitarian concerns. Now, this came up in a Russian context before, which is why it was passed here in Congress. We imposed the same, these same type of sanctions on the Interior and Justice Minister of Turkey as a result of the kidnapping of Pastor Brunson, who was thankfully released. Mm. This is something that we could do to the specific members of the Saudi family, Again, it's just an idea. It would impose sanctions. It would make a very strong point, and it would be directly tied to humanitarian issues. What we don't need to do is torpedo the fact that since we pulled out of the Iran deal on November 4th is when the biggest sanctions are turned against Iran. That's against Iran's oil production, shipping capabilities, and everything to do with their energy sector. We have an agreement with Saudi Arabia that they're going to make up for that oil production, which mm. they've agreed to do, which is to keep the market stable for the entire world. That's something we still want to be doing. In other words, we don't want to just put a, a torpedo in our entire foreign policy and let one journalist now determine what our uh, future foreign policy is going to be as horrible as this But I mean, sounds. I, I think, you know, one of the... the sort of more impressive aspects, I suppose, of Trump's diplomacy so far has been his willing to to, to play brinksmanship with people and say, no, you can't threaten us like that, we'll, we'll threaten you. And with the Saudis, they've been quite threatening, you know, in response to this. So, you know, if, 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 if these sanctions come in, you know, we, we can collapse the global economy, basically, has been their line. <laughs> right. and, uh, and it may be true, but you'd imagine, like, a, a strong American government would be able to say, no, we're not going to be pushed around by you. Right. And, and so far, I, one can see a, a reasonable criticism of Trump that it's, it doesn't look, it looks like he's, you know, he's waiting it out. But it doesn't look like he's being the, the kind of tough guy that he's been with, certainly with North Korea and Iran. The the fact is, when your enemy does something, you should do something back to them that makes sense, that's still within what you want to have as your foreign policy, such as when Russia pulled off killing a, a double agent or so in London, in our allies' place. We should have a public response that should match how strong our private response has been so far. Now, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, we need to have a response that keeps them still as an ally, because that is how they've behaved. And frankly, that's the cornerstone of our forward policy in the Middle East, which is to create a big, large umbrella coalition that is going to push back on Iran. That requires Saudi Arabia's participation. Mm. The knock against the Obama administration was that he would take allies such as Saudi Arabia and a lot in the in the Islamic and Muslim world and Israel, and he would throw them under the bus privately, but more importantly, he would do that publicly, mm. which is not how friends are supposed to behave. 
this is something where we can have very strong conversations, as I imagine we are, because there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that tells me that President Trump or Secretary Pompeo or anyone in the White House or in the administration is saying, boy, I'm really glad we had this happen. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're making it clear more quietly as you do to an ally Number one, this is not going to happen again. Then number two, there should be a response that's befitting of that, which, as I said, there there are multiple options that are very short of torpedoing the relationship. But we've, we heard a lot of, I mean, perhaps slightly hysterical talk about the collapse of the liberal world order and that now we kind of, you know, we have to accept, uh, or, that, or that we will soon have to accept that, the world is sort of series, chain of mobster states, really, and that's what we're going to deal with. That may be over the top, but certainly we're seeing a, a return to realpolitik, and perhaps it's healthy that we've got rid of a lot of the kind of cant and piety that went with all the liberal world order stuff that we had in the 90s. Well, you know, the the problem with this is that, uh, I mean, in the end, if you expand that, that idea out, it's... Uh, the countries that are controlling their own media, their own free press, their own ways that people can communicate publicly, Twitter, Signal, you name the platform, those are the places that are most able to remain on top, which is not what we in the West should be supporting. Mm. I mean, they keep saying, from what I've read, that uh, Putin remains extremely popular in Russia, despite the fact that you know there's a negative birth rate there. The country is literally, to quote John McCain, is a gas station that's a terrorist state. You know, it's not, I mean, okay, Russia, it's a bit much to call it a terrorist state, even though it's bombing hospitals and, 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 and other Poison, places and, and like in yeah. schools, of course. And, but, but, uh, this is, it's, uh, they are able to remain in power when they can control this, even though every outside indicator would say, how can anyone like the fact that you are driving the bus in slow motion off the cliff? You know, that doesn't ben- that means that the advantage is not <laughs> in the West and the way that we do things, because obviously you look at us right now, you look at no matter what side you came down on the Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings, whatever it was, you felt it. And whatever you felt, you felt to the uh, to the 11th degree. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't just sort of feel something. Everything's turned into that with uh, social media now these these days, which in the West, that's free speech we're you know we're we're doing this to ourselves but if you if you buy the 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 you know the the russian disinformation warfare stuff that's exactly what they're trying to do right they're trying to divide they're trying to polarize and yeah and, that, that, and it seems to be working pretty well right i mean and that's the most amazing thing like i mean again i'm slightly different as a person on the right where i've known that russia has been acting as an enemy before mm. Like back when Obama was letting them into Syria to pose a threat to NATO (laughs) through the southern flank, like when we were doing nothing, I was saying they are acting as an enemy. And then after Russia was accused of, uh, you know, swinging the election to Trump, which of course there's no evidence that's been shown, I said, and I keep saying they're still an enemy, right? So we we need to be uh, consistent about, about that. So let's go back to journalism and and what we started with, which is this sort of warfare over whether it's smearing Khashoggi to ask questions. What does it say about the American media now that that that's become the conversation so quickly? 
Yeah, it says that we still are living with the legacy of the echo chamber, which from that great article by David Samuel, I believe it was in uh, uh, the New York, the New Yorker, New York Times, or yeah. something like that. It was uh, that really was quoting Ben Rhodes on his creation of the echo chamber, in which he basically said, "You know, journalists are dumb; they don't know anything. They will report anything that we give them." Okay, well, they are still reporting by in large part the same kind of talking points that are given to them. Journalists don't see today their role to be exploring the truth, to have multiple sources. And this is like seen almost as passe. Now it's you adopt the cause and the ideology, and then you make sure that everything bends toward that. I think it's very unfortunate because I think the damage, and this is how I closed the article I wrote for The Spectator, is that the damage that the media has done to themselves long after Trump leaves the stage, it's going to be irreparable. Well, and that's what this is. It's very peculiar that with this story, with this Khashoggi story in Saudi Arabia, it's become, you know, Western Washington journalists talking about free speech and the importance of it in the, in the Arab world at the same time as they seem to be sort of saying to other journalists, you can't answer, ask this question. So they're, they're sort of yeah. directly contradicting themselves. Yeah. And they're also saying, by the way, this one guy who's a journalist who you can't ask questions about is worth way more than half a million civilians who have been killed while everyone sat in the sideline in Syria by either Iran, by Russia, just people being killed dropping bombs, using chemical weapons, which were unthinkable to have been used before. Uh, they don't matter. Apparently, they don't matter in this new media age. What matters is, is this one person who we can't ask any questions about without being accused of, of you know, being part of some giant right-wing cabal. It's all in line with the same thing that conservatives have been talking about forever, which is whenever you speak up, you're then called a racist. This has nothing to do with it. This is the immediate defense. You know, Guy Benson, Matt, Barry Catherine Ham wrote a book on this, I believe, too. Like, I'm right, you're wrong, shut up, or something like that. You know, <laughs> it's basically like end of discussion or something. It's this is the role that we're in. Adopt our ideology, or be quiet. That's not where the liberals used to be. On that note, I will end the discussion. So <laughs> thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. <laughs> <laughs>